everybody's a winner when we learn something, so put that in your pocket. Uh, I, I am Tony Ganser from 90.3 WCPN, and uh, as Karina said, your questions are a great part of this program, so afterwards, please do come up to the microphone and participate. That'll be great. Uh, before we start, Stacy, maybe if you could say a few words about yourself and, and your expertise. Hi, sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is a really exciting kind of venue to be able to, to address today. Um, my name is Stacy Philbrick-Yadov. I'm a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges in Geneva, New York. So I got to drive over today. It wasn't really that far. And I'm glad that it wasn't snowing in April like it was yesterday. Not today, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have been working on the politics of Yemen since I first went in 2003 uh, as a graduate student. And I've increasingly narrowed my focus. I, when I started out as a graduate student, I worked uh, on a project that was in Yemen and in Lebanon, but over time have really come to exclusively focus on the domestic politics of Yemen. And so um, that wasn't really a hot thing for a really long time. And in the past few years, uh, as you are undoubtedly aware, Yemen's been in the headlines for its devastating civil and now internationalized war. So I, I have found that uh, the one silver lining is that there are more people who want to come to events like this and learn more. Mm -hmm. Last time uh, we talked about Yemen, and I think this may be the, the only topic or one of very few that we've done again, was 2015. And at that time, we were kind of setting up where is Yemen? What is going on exactly? And during that hour, eight-minute conversation, I think, we sort of got a better understanding, but it's so complex. And I wonder if we start there. Can you remind us what happened and, and how did we get to now? Sure. So Yemen, uh, we don't have a map or an ability to project anything, but Yemen's at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula, just to the south of Saudi Arabia. It's about half of the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula with Oman next to it and Saudi Arabia to the north. And uh, what happened in 2015, from an external perspective, it looks like Saudi Arabia launched a war on Yemen, and that's partially true. The, the more accurate history probably goes back to 2011. Yemen had an uprising like many of its neighbors. Unlike a few of its neighbors, that uprising did not end in a rapid transition at the top. It ended in a divided government and an 11-month quasi-civil war, quasi-civilian uprising. At the end of that point, there was a, a transitional process that was overseen by the Gulf Cooperation Council. And for those of you who don't know what the GCC is, it's the collection of all of the other countries in the Arabian Peninsula, or all of the rich countries in the Arabian Peninsula. So Yemen is uh, the poorest country in the Arab region, and it was before all of this happened. It's much worse off today. Um, and it's not ever been a member of the GCC. So those neighboring countries put together this transition plan that was sort of marketed to Western audiences as a tr plan to transition to democracy, but was really, more accurately, a plan to stabilize Yemen. And to do so, they really leaned heavily on known actors, 
But it wasn't known actors who staged that uprising, and it wasn't known, it was young people, right? It was people who had been excluded by the political system. So uh, there was a real mismatch, and that whole transitional process was very bumpy, and there was really a gradual descent into the conditions of civil war. So by 2014, the Houthi movement, which you may have heard of, um, marched on the Capitol and demanded a renegotiation of that transitional agreement. They kind of reached a temporary holding pattern, but uh, by January, they pushed the government out of office, and by, by March of that year, so four years ago, um, last month, um, they uh, were in invaded, I guess, by some accounts, by a coalition of states at the request of that displaced government. Mm -hmm. So the displaced government of President Hadi said to Saudi Arabia, please come help me put come help me put me back in office. And that was the beginning of the international phase of Yemen's civil war. So uh, before we get too much into the international actors, I think if we spend just a little more time on the Houthis and really what the divisions are within this civil war, is it as simple as saying it's a Shia-Sunni conflict, or is it a domestic North-South conflict, or everything in between? all of the above, yeah. and some more, yeah. right? Okay, so the conventional way that the war is presented is it's the Houthi insurgents against the legitimate government of Yemen, and that is the legitimate government of Yemen's framing of the division. The Houthis are a socio-political movement, now an armed movement, that originated in the 1990s in a part of the north that has a large Shi'i population. But an interesting thing is that at that time, Yemenis would not have referred to themselves as Shi'i. They would have called themselves Zaidi, which is actually like a, a subset of Shi'ism. And I say that's important because it's only really found in Yemen. So to be Zaidi is also to be Yemeni, right? It's like definitely a Yemeni identity, but it wasn't, not all Yemenis were from that, that background. So they'd been evangelized by Sunnis, who also didn't call themselves Sunnis, but it's a separate <laughs> issue. Um, they'd been evangelized and subjected to what they referred to as a kind of cultural imperialism, largely financed by Saudi Arabia and with some cooperation with the Yemeni government, and felt themselves to be kind of under cultural assault. And so they developed things like summer camps and youth programs to try and reinstill a sense of Zaidi identity. And before too long, it became what was called a Zaidi revival, a kind of revivalist movement. And they wanted a more, more cultural protection from the government and more equitable development policies for their part of the country where they predominated. Uh, that wasn't received well by then President Ali Abdullah Saleh, who governed for more than 30 years in Yemen. Uh, he put down, uh, he, a leader of the Houthi movement was killed, and then he put down the insurgency that followed through really brutally suppressive force, which included the targeting of civilian communities, a media blockade that prevented Yemeni or international journalists from covering that fallout. And it really embittered that community. They weren't the only community in Yemen to be making claims against the government. And by 2011, when the uprising started, there were at least four different groups in different parts of the country that were all kind of uh, rising up to one extent or another against the central government, plus the protesters associated with the kind of Arab Spring uprising. 
So the Houthis were one faction. The really important piece that I can't emphasize enough is that the Gulf Cooperation Council Transitional Agreement left the Houthis out. They made a coalition government that theoretically included members of the ruling party and members of the opposition, but they excluded two critically important groups, and I want, we'll talk about both of them today. One is the Houthis, and the other is something called the Hirak or the Southern Movement, which is a secessionist movement in the South that has nothing to do with the politics of the Houthis. Both of those groups were left out of that transitional government, and they both had access to weapons. So I think you can imagine that they became spoilers to that transitional process and made it really um, difficult to reestablish order, let alone fulfill the demands for democracy or accountable governance that so many Yemenis had expressed. The Houthis had history with Saleh uh, through the 90s. And I wonder if, if you talk about what what is the goal of both the Hirak and the Houthis? Do they just want chaos? Do they want the country split into tribal areas or? I think it's hard to say anything categorical about the Hirak, about the Southern movement. It's extremely internally divided. But in general, I would say that both groups were seeking more autonomy on the one hand within their respective regions and more political voice. And that there was absolutely a moment in both cases where if that had been fulfilled, they might not have become secessionist. Today, the Southern movement, the Hirak, is secessionist. They would like to reestablish an independent republic in South Yemen, which was in existence for many, many years. Uh, I think that's uh, a part of the deeper history of Yemen is that there were two Yemens for a long time. And I, I don't know if we have the ability to go there. Um, but the Hirak, the Southern Movement, has been around since 2007, and the Houthi Movement has been a coherent movement since 2004. So these are long-standing grievances with the old regime that became deeply exacerbated by the transitional framework. One narrative that I see pop up every once in a while is that the situation in Yemen is described as a proxy war. And we mentioned the, the Shiite and the Sunni, and you have Iranian influence on the Shiite side and Saudi Arabia and other actors on the Sunni side. Um, is that too simple, though, to paint it with those colors? So the way I like to think about this is that it reverses the causal arrow. To call it a proxy war makes it sound like the interests of those external parties drove the war. And the account that I just gave you is one that suggests that that's not the case, right? The, the conditions of the war were internally motivated and attracted external actors. Okay, so absolutely, Iran is involved today in backing the Houthi movement in material terms, in economic terms, um, in terms of weapons, and in terms of training, absolutely. They don't share the same religio-political vision. They are Shia, but they're not the same kind of Shia, and they don't necessarily envision the same kind of state. And the Houthis have always known that eventually they would need to engage in some kind of power sharing with non-Houthis because they have nothing close to the kind of demographic weight that it would take to govern the whole of Yemen. Mm -hmm. So I read Iranian involvement in the Yemen conflict as an opportunity for Iran to retain its relevance, to meddle. Another way of putting it would be to say that Iran follows winners. And let me explain what I mean by that. They don't look like winners, right? This is a terrible civil war, and it's been going on for four years, and the conflict much longer. But they survived a deeply asymmetric war. 
So this is a war against multiple states with militaries and air forces and that way outgun this militia in the north. And the militia, through some complicated developments, did manage to capture some of the former military equipment of the, the Yemeni army. But they're still dramatically outmatched in military terms. And they're not defeated. So from my perspective, that it's OK to characterize the Houthis as as at least viable, if not a winning side, enough to attract Iranian support and, and an increase in Iranian support. From a U.S. perspective, Saudi Arabia is nominally an ally, even though there are a number of complications with that relationship, which we've talked about in these forums before. Um, but when we see Saudi Arabian airstrikes and involvement in Yemen, and then you juxtapose that with Iranian involvement, it's hard to paint one side, at least for me, as, as an ally or a good guy or a bad guy. Uh, can, can you delineate that for us and, and help us understand who's working for whom and is there a good guy in this situation? Because it seems like it's a horrible situation. Yeah, I don't think that there's a good guy among any of the combatants in this war. I do think that the everyday heroism of Yemenis who are continuing to somehow miraculously feed and take care of their families, the, the women who are running schools out of their homes, those people, uh, you know, they're good guys. Uh, but the combatant groups, whether it's the Houthis or the Saudis or the Yemeni armed factions aligned with the Saudis, uh, no, I wouldn't characterize any of them as good guys. In terms of U.S. involvement, we are backing the coalition. Who is the coalition? Well, principally, it's Saudi Arabia, but there are a number of other states. It's waxed and waned over the past four years. At its height, there were 13 states that were involved in this coalition. And it's not an internally coherent bloc. This is something maybe we'll talk about a little bit more in a few minutes, but its members are doing different things with different Yemeni groups. And so to be backing the coalition is a really unclear thing it, uh, in terms of, of what kind of future Yemen we are supporting there. What we are doing that's pretty typical is we're being statist. Right? The United States is backing states and backing the displaced government of a state instead of an insurgent group. That's not enormously surprising. And it explains a bit some of US policy in the, at the UN level. What's inexplicable is US targeting assistance, military sales, and the amount of logistical support that we're giving directly to the airstrikes on the Saudi side of the equation. Uh what is the end game for all of this battle? Uh, because as you talk about this humanitarian crisis, one of the figures in, in the pieces in the magazine available is that 80% of the Yemeni population has been affected by this humanitarian crisis in some way. Massive food shortages, you know, lack of medical care. It's hard to get any aid in because the ports are being used as uh, chits in this battle between all the sides. So. What are they fighting over as this population is dying and suffering? I think that's become, I mean, I think that's a tremendously good question. And I think that that's become an increasingly obscure question to me as the war has gone on. Uh, not unlike Syria. You know, I think it's, it's uh, what's governor, what is there to govern at the end? Um, 
the humanitarian crisis is staggering. And it's gotten a lot worse in the last year. So it was already really terrible. And this was already a country that was enormously poor. So the baseline starting point has to be uh, borne in mind here. But in just the past year, there's been a 60% increase in the price of food. And over the course of the war, 150% increase in the price of food. Mm. Um, and that means that 9.6 million Yemenis are living in a phase four food emergency, which is one step from famine. Okay. The fact that it's gotten so much worse this year is because, as you suggested, of the struggle over the port city of Hodeida. So the port city of Hodeida is in the hands nominally of the Houthis. It's been threatened with encirclement and siege for a couple of years. Last summer, we narrowly averted, I think, a total disaster with, when there was a lot of UN pressure to keep the port open. Blockade has been a major instrument of war. And I just I don't think I can emphasize clearly enough that hunger has been instrumentalized by the coalition here, but not just by the coalition. So when Hodeida was squeezed, so now um, in there was one little thing that I wrote down that I wanted to mention. Right, OK. Before the war, 96% of Yemen's food aid came in through the port city of Hodeida. That's been cut by more than 40%. Uh, in the past um, two quarters, so what, you know, in the past half of a year. Uh, what does that actually mean? Where is the rest of the food coming from? Well, first of all, there just isn't enough and people are starving. But it also means that now smuggling routes from Saudi Arabia and from Oman are more lucrative than ever. And so black mar uh, the black market in food aid is really thriving. And it thrives through a series of checkpoints that are set up along the roads by militias who tax the food as it moves from place to place throughout the country. So guess who can still come up with the money to buy weapons? Right? So in this way, the war becomes a self-financed endeavor on the backs of civilians who can't pay the price of that food. The food is in the markets in the major cities. It's entering the country and it's going to the markets and people can't afford to buy it because of those transit costs that the food incurs as it moves through the country. You also say in, in this piece about the war economy that's been created, some families are marrying their daughters in their early teens or younger to settle debts, raise money for food, give household one less mouth to feed. Many more are finding employment in the one growth area of the economy fighting for military groups. So this country is deteriorating from the inside, um, trying to survive. But the definition of survival itself is changing based on necessity and just these horrid conditions. Yes, and I would say that the, the suffering of children in Yemen is, is gendered. Girl children suffer in ways that are different from boy children, but children categorically are suffering because the boys are becoming child soldiers, right? And the girls are becoming child brides. One of the things that we know is that about half of school-aged children in Yemen are not in school. And one of the reasons for that, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is that over the course of the war, 4.3 million Yemenis have become displaced people, internally displaced. And the external borders of the country are sealed. So you're not seeing Yemenis as part of the global refugee crisis. They're still inside Yemen and essentially trapped. And so schools have become a place to center ID, to center IDP relief, internal, internally displaced persons relief. 
in schools, but then they're not being used as schools. So that is also contributing to uh, an enormous number of kids who are out of school. This is a generational humanitarian crisis. I've heard uh, Yemen, or I've seen Yemen described as not a failed state, but a dying one. I also saw it described as a chaos state based on the situation. How would you describe all of this together? Is it already a failed state, or is it just a state of chaos? So I have a, I have a relationship to that term, mm -hmm. let me say. The, the idea of failed states, uh, it's a term that circulates in a way that ends up justifying intervention. If we look at where we describe the state as failing, that frequently ends up being the next set of American boot prints on the ground. And so I am reluctant to use the term failed state for those reasons. I also have a pretty vivid memory of when Foreign Policy Magazine listed Yemen as a failed state for the first time. I think it was in 2004. And I was sitting with a bunch of Yemenis who passed around the, the magazine and talked about it. And like, are we a failed state? What's, and they were very mindful of that threat of intervention that came with that term, and therefore kind of reluctant. That said, I would also say, historically, what was called evidence of failed state in Yemen might have been better understood as selective state weakness, where the government of Ali Abdullah Saleh kind of manipulated uh, this specter of ungovernability in order to do what I call security rent seeking, in order to turn to the United States and say, there's going to be a complete crisis here if you don't give me more aid. There's going to be a complete crisis here if you don't give me more guns, and then used those weapons to suppress his domestic opponents. That's not the situation today, because there isn't even that level of centralization. So now, instead, we have a really fragmented landscape with a bunch of mini jurisdictions. People are providing for their own security at the local level. People do that. Yemen is a very heavily armed state, and it was uh, well before the war, and local communities are doing their best to try and organize something that we, we might call governance. In terms of what comes next, though, it's not clear to me whether or not this war ends with a single territorial state. The southern secessionist movement is a big deal. The demands of the Houthis are a big deal and have become a little bit, they're not quite secessionist, but they've become a little bit more territorial over time. Um, what I notice most of all, though, is that the way that the Gulf countries are investing already in reconstruction within these little jurisdictions that are pockets of calm develops new patron-client relationships to outside regimes. And so I imagine Yemen will be able to limp along to some extent with this semi-sovereignty and semi-intervention by its neighbors for some time. Uh, so I'd like to split kind of the future question in two and maybe go back to the humanitarian aspect. You used the term in the, in the piece and you used it here. It's a multi-generational uh, consequence of this. And especially when you look at children, when you look at women and girls, when you look at the state of uh, the lack of stability, can we even project uh, what it's going to look like to dig out of this or what it's going to take to create stability for those vulnerable populations who are becoming even more vulnerable. So I have a little bit of an unusual answer to that maybe. Um, I have a pocket of optimism and that comes from 
the work that I've been doing with some colleagues on women's activism in local communities and the things that women are doing already to make sure that some education continues, that some health care is available. And they are absolutely working miracles every day. What they aren't getting is political voice and inclusion in the peace process. And I don't mean, oh, Yemen is a society built on patriarchal norms and the women are being left out. I mean the United Nations is not adequately including women in the negotiating framework or centering not just the needs of those women but the capabilities of them in terms of thinking about how to rebuild. So I think there's a lot to work with. I think there are, there are people who are already doing a lot of that work and it's not just women. There are also independent civil society activists uh, who, are, who are men, uh, but those are resources that don't just deserve to be listened to, but actually to be centered and served by, by the peace process. And quite frankly, um, I think that the UN has the ability to do that, so I, I really uh, struggle to accept that they have not. And going to what you said about a, a client relationship that could be developing that once once the hot warfare stops and there is a quote-unquote opportunity for investment from some of these same actors that destroyed the country, essentially they can then offer their services to help rebuild it. Um, what can be done to uh, make sure the population is not taken advantage of through that reconstruction process or do we not even know yet? Uh, the specifics. Okay, so first of all, we know a little bit because it's already happening. In the southern part of the country, especially in Aden, in, which is functioning as, as a de facto capital for the displaced government, uh, there's enough stability that some reconstruction is already happening. In the province of Marib, a lot of reconstruction is already happening. So we're watching those patron-client relationships happen as Gulf investors pay the, you know, foot the bill, but they don't foot it as charity, you know, it's, it's, it's an investment and uh, this is part of the war economy. Reconstruction, I think, is always part of a war economy. So it is already happening. In terms of what could be done differently or to, to, to minimize that, um, I have uh, spoken before and, and, and been in conversations that have talked about a pooled fund Right? So if the idea is that a civil war is by definition a moment of state breaking, right, where the state in some way stops doing the things that people would like a state to do, um, reconstruction has to involve rebuilding public confidence. And I think that having a pooled fund that the neighboring states contributed to and that perhaps the EU or the United States or other stakeholders contribute to and that people have to transparently bid for those reconstruction funds would be a really big deal in two ways. First of all, it would be cleaner, yeah. right? But second of all, it would also get people talking to each other about what different communities need, and it would actually do some of that nation building and state building, and I understand that those are controversial terms, but I think that it's sure preferable to the private sector-led reconstruction model that's already happening. This is a massive topic, and we've covered only part of it. Uh, but I would like to open it up to your questions. Uh, if you have a question, feel free to come up to the microphone. We'll move it over for you while we're waiting for folks to uh, come up. Really, don't be afraid. You can come up. Um, but I wonder about the US uh, role in either the cessation of hostilities or 
putting pressure mm -hmm. on Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, stopping arms, right. you know, sales or, or what have you. So I think we can all dispense with the idea that the United States could function as an honest broker in the peace process. We are a combatant in this war. So there's no way that the US can like make it happen. But the US is in a good position to put pressure on the coalition to more legitimately engage in the peace process and to do it in a way that can actually address the concerns that I've raised. To do that, we have to leverage the weapons sales. And so this is what members of Congress have been working on and following several countries in the European Union that have also done similar things. Um, so the, uh, the War Powers Act has been invoked for the first time, right? And we have bills in the House and in the Senate that address this. Now, it might seem like this came out of nowhere. And it might seem like it came about after Khashoggi's assassination last year. It didn't come out of nowhere. This legislation's been in the works going back to 2015, especially early, uh, especially into the fall of 2016. Um, there are organizations in DC like the Yemen Peace Project, with which I've been involved, but Win Without War, lots of organizations that have been active trying to, to increase congressional support for this legislation. And we're, we really are getting there. Trump administration's going to veto it. There's no question about that. So we've got to build the case even more strongly. Hmm. Uh, well, I'll ask another question then. Really, if you have a question, please come up. Um, you point out in, in one of the pieces in the magazine that the Yemeni diaspora came together at one point after the Trump quote unquote travel ban and actually created some political pressure here. Can you talk more about that um, that agency that they felt? Maybe? Sure. And um, first of all, I'll say that when that happened, I did an interview with one of the organizers, uh, also for Middle East Report. And you, you should come check out Middle East Report, because it's a great uh, source of information on this topic. In uh, When the Muslim ban came out, uh, you may have heard of something called the Bodega Workers Strike in New York City pretty much brought New York City's small markets to a close because a large percentage of bodega owners in New York City are Yemeni. And so the Yemeni Business Owners Association organized this strike, and it was powerful. And what was really remarkable about it is that it brought people who don't have the same politics together. So they're not on the same, like the, the diaspora here in the United States is fragmented in ways that map onto this civil war. They don't all agree with each other. There, I have Yemeni American friends who strongly back the coalition and I think it's important to, to recognize that, right? That there can be people who think that the civilian casualties are unfortunate, right? But there are people who think that President Hadi needs to be put back into power and so, Folks with those feelings and folks who were completely opposed to the coalition came together around the issue that no Yemeni should be categorically banned from coming to the United States under any circumstances as that uh, travel ban mm -hmm. attempted to bring about and has largely effectively brought about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, question Great. please. Uh, thanks for being here this evening. Um, so it's a two-part question. The first is uh, you've, you've characterized the United States as a combatant in this conflict. Um, how complicit do you feel uh, our government is in the humanitarian crisis? And then the second part is given the, the scale of the crisis, 
Um, why do you feel it hasn't generated the level of media attention and outrage uh, here in the United States? Thank okay. you. Thank you, and I'm really excited by both of those questions. So um, in terms of U.S. culpability in the humanitarian crisis, um, I think the U.S. is culpable in two ways, one more direct than the other. The airstrikes that the Saudis are employing have wrecked the civilian infrastructure of Yemen. I mean, absolutely they've killed civilians, but beyond that, they've really wrecked the civilian infrastructure, including uh, sanitation infrastructure, which has contributed directly to the cholera crisis last year, where more than a million cases of cholera, which I would like to emphasize is completely preventable. Right, and was preventable. Cholera was not some kind of common condition in Yemen when I was living and doing research there. This is, this is a new problem, and it was a problem that was made through the destruction of infrastructure. So I think we have a direct culpability there because we've been providing not only the, the weaponry, but also tactical logistical information about targeting. Uh, so clear implication there. Uh, but, uh, and now I'm forgetting the second way. Oh, the media attention part. Thank you. Um, okay, so here is a, a case in which I don't actually think the U.S. is entirely culpable. Um, the U.S. is actually replicating some internal bigotries that exist in Arab media about Yemen, too. Mm -hmm. So it is the case that whenever I would talk with friends or colleagues in Cairo about the work I was doing in Yemen, the things that they would say were, quite frankly, often very rude and dismissive of Yemenis as the poor country bumpkins, as the underdeveloped embarrassment to other Arabs, et cetera. And I think that for many, many years, U.S concern with Yemen has already been kind of a, we've deferred to Saudi Arabia. I mean, Greg Johnson long, he, who, who wrote a, a good book about Yemen, uh, long used to joke, we don't have a Yemen policy, we have a Saudi policy. And the Saudi policy is to defer, um, or the, the US policy is to defer to Saudi Arabia. I think our opinions, our public discourse about Yemen has been disproportionately shaped by knock-on forms of bigotry that, that exist elsewhere, too. Next question, please. Hello, thank you for being here. So this is a conflict that I've followed throughout the years. Going back to the peace process, um, what impact has the Stockholm Agreement had on, on the ground as far as humanitarian aid and just the whole peace process in general? And then second, what is President Hattie up to? Because maybe he's not getting enough press coverage, but it seems that he's given up his powers and it's really the Saudis speaking for him. Um, and if I recall correctly, uh, not too long ago, there were rumors that he was under house arrest in Riyadh. Okay. So the Stockholm Agreement, we haven't talked about that. It was an agreement that was reached in uh, December and for, it really only addressed the port city of Hodeida, and it was a partial agreement, right? It was not a comprehensive peace agreement, but it was designed to address specifically the humanitarian crisis and to keep the port open. It, there's been very little implementation to date. Uh, the ceasefires have repeatedly broken down, and uh, I don't think that the coalition, I can't speak for the coalition, obviously, but I don't think that they think that it has teeth. Right, that there's any particular enforcement mechanism or consequence for failure to honor it. And similarly, the Houthis have failed to uphold numerous of their own agreements or their own uh, up to Stockholm and since Stockholm. So it just, uh, it hasn't been implemented effectively. What is Hadi up to? Um, 
I've heard those rumors too. I've heard rumors about his ill health. He certainly is not a very visible presence. Um, and he long ago deferred a lot of his power to Saudi Arabia when he asked Saudi Arabia to put him back on the throne. Next question, please. Hi, thank you for coming here. Um, so I was curious about the involvement of Saudi Arabia. Specifically, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, is one of the youngest crown princes, I think maybe the youngest crown prince in Saudi Arabian history. And he stands to sit on the throne of Saudi Arabia for the next five or four or five decades. So to what extent is the Saudi uh, involvement in Yemen being driven by uh, Mohammed bin Salman as opposed to the king of Saudi Arabia? And what do you think Mohammed bin Salman wants out of this? Why is he driving, or if he is the one driving this, why is he, why, why is, what is he pursuing? Okay, thank so you, the you. very first thing I have to say is that I'm not a Saudi specialist, and so that, that pushes me a little bit out of my area of expertise. But I can tell you I read a lot about this topic. Um, he is young. He is in charge of this war, full stop. This was his portfolio before he became crown prince. It's become his, the core focus for him. And he's not winning the war, which is a very expensive war and a very embarrassing thing. So if you factor in what I just said a minute ago about these kind of internal bigotries, if he can't defeat Houthi insurgents who are often characterized as sort of shoeless mountain bumpkins with guns, right? If he can't defeat them with those Saudi warplanes war and all of the money that the Saudis can put into this war, then you know what, what good is he? from a domestic standpoint. So I think that he cannot afford to lose. At the same time, he can't afford to win because this has been a really costly war and it's come at a bad economic moment for Saudi Arabia. So if you look at some other developments that are going on in the Saudi economy, they've had to make some tough choices to introduce some direct taxation of the population, which had long been very, um, something that the regime had been able to avoid. They've engaged in uh, labor nationalization policies, making it harder or trying to reduce the number of foreign workers in order to address growing unemployment among Saudis. These are things that suggest that the Saudi economy is not in tip-top shape and that the Yemen war is seen in Saudi media as one of the drivers of that. So um, I think he has to win and I don't think he can figure out how to win and I, I um, you know, I guess I don't envy him, although I say that, you know, that there are a lot of reasons I don't envy him, but. Yes. Next question, please. Thank you. Uh, you briefly mentioned about the war in Syria, and you kind of compared the Yemeni war, the Syrian war, and you connected the Arab Spring. How can you, again, draw a comparison between the Syrian war and the Yemeni war, knowing that the same part is almost the U.S. role also in both countries, starting with the Obama administration, the current administration. And you also mentioned that as US, US role as a combatant in the war in Yemen, but you also mentioned that we can play a peaceful role or, or a settlement or solution. So how can this be? So let me clarify, when I was speaking about Syria, it was in one very specific way, which was to say, I often ask myself about Syria, what Assad thought he would be winning if he won. Right, a destroyed country, destroyed infrastructure, a humanitarian crisis. So I have the same question in Yemen, right? If someone's going to win this militarily, what are they going to win? 
that was what I meant by the analogy, and pretty much only that, to tell you the truth. Because I don't believe in, uh, in the Yemeni case, I don't believe that there is a military victory to be had uh, by any side. The U.S. role again as as uh, a peacemaker, or you know, in, in Yemen, you said. I, I don't believe that the U.S. has a role to play as a peacemaker. I believe that the U.S. can put leverage on the Saudis to participate in peace negotiations, but that needs to be brokered by someone else. And I think that the Omanis are the best positioned to do that. They've been doing. They are neighbors. They have a stake. They do not want to see this crisis continue, and they have maintained a position of formal neutrality throughout and brokered a lot of back-channel negotiations between all sides. They also do a much better job than the United Nations of involving non-combatants in the negotiating framework. Thank you. Do you have a question? Yep. What do you see as the role, if there is any, for the youth? In other kinds of conflicts, youth have been a significant actor, uh, their desires, their dreams that are being sabotaged, really. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? I'd be happy to. Uh, in 2012 and 2013, I spent a fair amount of time working with Yemeni youth activists uh, who were trying to determine whether or not there was a, something called the National Dialogue Conference, which was a centerpiece of that transitional process. And the youth were trying to decide whether or not they should go as a common delegation, as youth or whether or not they should go representing their regions, young people from their regions, or young people with different political ideologies, or different sectarian backgrounds, or women, or whatever. Like, was there a distinctive youth position? And the answer is no. There was not a distinctive youth position, and I think it's a little unreasonable of us to expect there to be one, because they have in common that they're young, and that they have to live with the consequences of whatever comes from this war, but they also are very internally differentiated, just like any group of young people would be anywhere. So I favor any kind of institutional or peace process that can give them an opportunity to advance those claims, but I would be very surprised if that took a common form. Um, I do see youth activists doing all kinds of great work in their communities. They are deeply fragmented. People cannot move around the country easily. People cannot connect across a lot of the internal divisions in the country easily. So the ability pragmatically to foster a common youth position is also undermined. Um, there is an organization in Germany that's just put out a, 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 that's funding a big research project on youth activism. And, and I think there is a lot of interest in this topic, but nothing can get around the territorial and other forms, maybe cognitive, maybe, uh, you know, of fragmentation that has been produced by four years of war. Next question, yeah. Hi. Hello. Um, I was intrigued by a comment that you made earlier of regarding the role of women, and that not just their needs needed to be understood, but their capabilities. And I was interested in just hearing you expand a little bit more on that. I think that a lot of the approaches that try to, to tap into what women are doing or what women know, kind of come at it from the perspective of using women as a source of information, as a way of finding out what's happening in this part or that part, because people know that women are, are working uh, in these various ways. I, 
I think that underestimates the extent to which they can continue to do work and to exert leadership in the post-war context, too. And so I'm eager to see women not just be treated as sources of information, but as doers and makers. Thank you. Um, it, it sounds like a pretty hopeless picture in a lot of ways. Um, do you see any, any outside events that could reorder uh, all of this? Um, we've talked in the past at, at some of these forums about the effects of climate change. You had talked about the cholera ep epidemic. Um, are there things on your radar screen that would sort of overwhelm the current factionalism there that, that might provide a, a sort of a unifying or a rallying cry to, to change things? Or, or are we basically looking at a, a fairless, fairly hopeless situation for, for the foreseeable future? So your question started out pessimistic, and then I went way darker. Uh, because I thought when you said climate change, I thought, oh, what could make this worse? Yeah, there are a couple of things I can think of that could make this worse. I didn't think what is the common unifying thing that might make it better, because I don't have one. And I'm sorry to say that. I do think, uh, I, w I didn't think the Stockholm Agreement was like particularly well designed, right? But I still supported it, because I do think the one thing that could make this so much worse is if the block, if the port city of Hodeida gets closed. So if the port city of Hodeida is closed by the coalition, the humanitarian crisis, disaster, I don't know, like, are there words beyond disaster because I need one for what, to describe what would happen if that port were effectively uh, un under siege or closed? Um, is there a rallying cry? I mean, maybe, maybe that would be so bad that people outside of Yemen would care. Um, I, I do think that the absence of, of much care or concern about this outside of Yemen is a problem. Um, but I don't, I don't have, um, it's bad to ask me to talk to you in a bar because uh, I don't have a happy ending. <laughs> Next question, yeah. You mentioned that the borders are sealed and it just brought about a really scary picture in my mind for the citizens that are kind of caught in the middle of all this. Could you expand a little bit upon what that means and what options are available to citizens? Sure, so Yemen's been, since 2015, since March of 2015, Yemen has been under conditions of partial blockade. And how closed off it is by the coalition has increased and decreased as certain battlefield developments have gone. So like when the port city of Aden was threatened by the Houthis, that's in the south, it's like way outside of where the Houthis core territory is, and really there was just an effort to then seal off the whole country to make sure that the Houthis didn't get access to an, a, a port, you know. Um, the Houthis were pushed out of Aden militarily quite, quite quickly, and so th the port city of Aden was then gradually reopened, but it's opened by the coalition. So the things and the people that can go in and out are controlled by the coalition. So in Aden, the coalition means the United Arab Emirates. It doesn't actually mean the Saudis. The Saudis are more important in, in parts of the north. The Saudis obviously control their land border with Yemen. The Omanis have kept their border 
pretty tightly closed as well, although they send humanitarian aid in and will occasionally airlift or otherwise transport um, um, people who are really sick or need specialized medical treatment. But those are um, strategic decisions by the Omani government that to keep the peace with Saudi Arabia, it needed to also keep its border reasonably closed. So I say reasonably closed and partial blockade because that's accurate. There, are, there is stuff coming in and out. There are people going in and out. There are nothing, but it's so restricted and it's so vetted by the coalition that it really means that the journalists who get to go in and out are vetted. Um, the humanitarian and aid workers who get to go in and out are vetted. And all of that really matters for who gets services, whose stories get told, et cetera. So it has profound and distortive impacts, um, even though it's not a total blockade. So what are the options for the citizens then that are kind of stuck there? There's, you know, people do cross the Red Sea in dangerous conditions, uh, and there are a reasonable number of displaced Yemenis in Djibouti uh, and in other parts of the Horn of Africa. Although, and this is beyond what I can actually speak to, but we know that there's also a flow from East Africa to Yemen because things are so bad in those parts of East Africa that the people would rather go to Yemen, which is mind-boggling. Um, but that's one avenue for crossing. Certainly there's trafficking. There's trafficking up into Saudi Arabia and that puts people at risk. Um, but there isn't a huge flow out. There's a lot of internal displacement. One thing that's different in Yemen from every other country in the region is that it still has a predominantly rural population. So almost ev every other state in the region I think has a predominantly urban population at this point. What does that mean? The the upside of it being predominantly rural is that most of the fighting is happening in urban centers. So the things that are posing the most mortal risk to most Yemenis actually are not airstrikes and, uh, or mortar fire that's happening in the cities, but starvation, because those rural areas are cut off from the places where the food is available. Uh, and the places where employment might be available. It does mean that people who were displaced from the cities often had kin kinship networks. They had people they could go stay with outside of the cities for periods of time. And so some of those internally displaced people are then able later to go home. You know, But it's uh, internal displacement is the story of the Yemen war, not refugee crisis. Last question, yeah. Uh, when Khashoggi was killed, uh, and we took some, the U.S. took some fairly modest steps to criticize Saudi Arabia. It wasn't more than about two weeks before we saw a picture of Putin and the prince yucking it up at a, some gathering. Do you see any risk that if we pull back from supplying the Saudis and the coalitions that Russia will fill that vacuum? That's a really interesting question. In general, the places in the Middle East where Russia has been most involved, it's been most involved with whoever is most closely aligned with Iran. Now, that's not a, that doesn't mean that it's not possible that you could see Russia want to align itself with Saudi Arabia in the event that, that the U.S. were to withhold arms. Um, but it does seem to me to be not enormously likely. When I have heard more concern about Russian involvement, it's been typically been, would Russia involve itself in propping up the Houthis if the Houthis were ever at risk of military defeat. 
and I, I have not, let me be very clear, I have not seen evidence that that's happening, but that seems to be the more predictable avenue. Thank you. Uh, as I said, this uh, topic is enormous. We've covered only a little bit of it, but I do encourage you to try to find information. It's, it's sometimes hard to find, but it's out there. Uh, and maybe if we keep talking about it and thinking about it, then something might somehow change. But thank you all for being here. Stacy. thank you very much. Everybody thank have a you. good night. Thank you.